hustlers, road players, tournament champions. Hear the stories, get their advice, learn about their lives. Our host, Joey Ryan, brings you an inside look at the professional pool player. You're listening to the Pool Player Podcast, brought to you by Pool Scene 365. Hey, welcome to Pool Player Podcast. This is Joey Ryan. This is brought to you by OnePKT.com. I want to thank you guys for joining. I'm really excited for this interview today. Uh, I've been trying to track this guy down. I joke around and say that he's the busiest guy in pool, Uh, but we're going to have a great discussion today. So I'm going to bring in uh, a former U.S. Open nine ball champion, U.S. Open one pocket champion. He's in the uh, one pocket Hall of Fame, and he's also the captain for the Team USA Moscone Cup. So let me bring him in right now. Hey, Jeremy, how's it going? It's Jeremy Jones. What's up, buddy? Hey, Joey, how you doing? Doing good. Oh man, yeah, I'm doing great. And you know, you and I we we kind of played tag a little bit trying to get this down. And I know you're so busy, so I do appreciate you making the time for this. Well, yeah, no problem. We'll just blame the pandemic like everything else. So. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. yeah. So, Jeremy, I really am excited to get to know a little more about you. So, if you would, could you tell us how you got started playing pool? Like, take us back to the beginning. Well, it was kind of funny. Uh, my dad liked playing pool. Um, my younger brother and, and I would have to go watch him play pool sometimes at the ice house uh, down the road from our neighborhood. He had some friends he played with and of course, they had a few beers and whatnot. So me and my younger brother actually learned to kind of hate it um, because we had to wait around. Um, you know, my dad on, like I said, a Friday and Saturday night sometimes. And then uh, and then a couple of times when we were young, we had a, a, a pool table. Again, my brother and I didn't really like it too much. Uh, and he and I were number five out of, and six out of six kids. So we were kind of the younger ones and, and palled around. But uh, we had actually play pull a, a, a homemade ping pong table over uh, one of the tables and kind of get in trouble for doing that. But it was it was kind of ironic. I many years went by and I was 17 <clears throat> and uh, I had two jobs at the time in high school. One of them was uh, I was a pizza delivery man. And, you know, on Friday and Saturday nights, we'd play uh, a little poker with our, our tip money and whatnot amongst the guys. And and one of the guys, Gilbert Luna, which we called Gibby, um, he was a pool player. So he, he had always go to the pool room uh, or the game room rather in Baytown. And, and, uh, and so just one day he took me down there and him and another coworker, honestly, kind of probably hustled me a little bit. So I had to work a few Friday nights, uh, on their tab, uh, for a month or so trying to pay off some debts, but I kind of got hooked to it. Uh, my family, we always kind of, in a sense, gambled a little bit or learned gambling games like, uh, you know, many card games and different things. And, and again, uh, so I just kind of got hooked. I quit one of my jobs and went and got a job at the game room so I could play pool for free. And it kind of went from there. Do you remember, was there like a point in time where you realized, Hey, wait a minute, I think I could be pretty good at this game. Anything stand out? Uh, well, I was a good athlete, um, prior to pool, most of the sports that I played, I picked up pretty quickly. I could emulate people and understand why things happen. Kind of, um, I was very lucky with a lot of good coaches. So, and same thing in pool, 
uh, being around the Houston area, there were a lot of great players. So you get, got to not only get to know them, but see them play a lot. So it didn't seem far-fetched to be able to improve. Uh, the one thing I didn't realize is that you could really do it for a living. That, that actually took me a year and a half or so before I realized that, you know, these guys play full-time. And, and so then I got really motivated, started going on the road and stuff. And when I started going on the road and really improving a lot, um, yeah, I thought I could do it for, for a while. Yeah, so I, I have plenty of questions about being on the road, and hopefully you have some stories to share with us. But I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, if there was a point in time where you realized you arrived, like, I could beat anybody. Was there a tournament? Was there a moment in time where it's like you, you won a big event, and you're like, hey, I could play with all these guys? Uh, in a sense, you know, in 94... I won the, uh, in 93, I finished second in the national A-ball event, the BCA, which was a huge event at the time for amateurs or, you know, people on the cusp or whatever you want to call it. But in the 94, I won the master's event and then also won uh, the Texas State Open. Uh, and I think at the time was the youngest player to do so, which was, you know, very motivating, especially with the list of players that had won that event. But also... I guess I kind of always put myself in a position to get knocked down, Joey, if this makes any sense. I kind of went on. Uh, Johnny Archer kind of taught me into playing professionally. I should I should be there doing that. And I went on in 96, and I think – I, I want to say I won zero matches in seven tournaments, but I might have won one. So, I, you know, I kind of like didn't sit there and say I've arrived at one level and then just stayed there, I guess. So I never really got that complacency. I actually got more motivated as I went, um, probably 96 to 99 or 2000, 2001. I practiced more than I ever had because uh, I realized what it took. So I don't I, I was I guess you could label me a humble player. Maybe maybe that's a good way to put it. I love that you said you won zero events or, or zero matches in any events because, you know, I, I'm a father. I have three little kids and I'm teaching them now that you have to accept failure. You have to learn to fail, right? You have to, you have to be willing to take a chance. And it sounds like you probably during those seven uh, tournaments where you didn't want to match, you probably doubted yourself. You know, what, what was that like? How did that feel? Uh, well, here, unfortunately it was kind of similar to the U S open a few weeks ago. Uh, I got kind of nervous that I'd never had before. Um, that happened a few weeks ago at the U.S. Open. Um, I, I don't know if it's exactly the same, but many of the guys, of course, were pure champions and Hall of Famers that I lost to. But uh, probably over half the guys I lost to that year um, were guys that I beat maybe in the back room or, what, you know, action, whatever you want to call it, or maybe even smaller events where I was more comfortable. It was just the setting and being around all those uh, peers and champions uh, and, and, you know, partly heroes that that kind of really it took me a while I talk about it all the time some people they hit the scene running Josh fillers and different ones but um, most of us it takes some seasoning 
Yeah, and so I know you spent a ton of time on the road. Um, in fact, I had C.J. Wiley on, and he started telling stories, and he was talking about some guy, Jeremiah Johnson, and all these stories. And then all these people started messaging me and said, I think he was talking about Jeremy Jones in that story. You know, Was that an alias of yours, or is that no, a completely different person? No, an older player from California. Oh, okay. He's probably a good 15 or 20 years older than me. He was uh, a guy that hung out at hard times a lot, and he was a uh, – I'm not sure his level, but from what I heard, he was like a road guy, you know, so who yeah. knows how great he played. But, uh, yeah, there was some confusion whenever I was on the road, you know, because <laughs> people had heard that name and not heard my name. And so they were like trying to say, well, you're Jeremiah Johnson. Is that? No, no, no. And so on and so forth. So, no, I think those were uh, a different guy. Yeah, I'm really curious to hear about your time on the road and maybe how that kind of sculpted you and molded you into the player that you are. Any stories that you have about the road? Anything you can share with us? Yeah, it was, I mean, it was a great, great experience all the time. I mean, we didn't always win, that's for sure. Uh, there were, you know, some good ride homes and some bad ride homes as far as uh, quote unquote. Um, there were some crazy, crazy things that happened, you know, uh, still to this day. People come up to me, mainly at the Derby because of that area. Uh, but one time I was in Morristown, Tennessee, and I was with a couple of buddies of mine, and it was around 97, 98, somewhere around there, because we were all in Baton Rouge. I don't know if you ever heard of those stories where everyone was in Baton Rouge for a couple of years gambling um, because the action was so heavy. But anyways, it lightened up, and a guy I'd ran into said, hey, if you're ever up my way, we'd love to gamble with you. So we went up to Morristown, Tennessee, and... I start playing a, a player up there. Mark Owens is his name, uh, local champion, really good player. And uh, his stake horse is the one I kind of befriended at a tournament who said, come up and gamble. So anyways, we start playing and I'm beating him, but it's close and I'm beating him. And we're playing like a thousand a set races to 11, I think. And so his stake horse was uh, Frank Seals, who was a legendary stake horse, and he brought up C.J. Wiley's name. He actually staked C.J. for some time um, way back. But anyways, so he says, well, we need a spot, but we want to raise the bet. And so as we're playing, uh, this is a small town, and if I remember right, the pool room is called Hawks Billiards. And so as we're playing each set, more people are coming in, and my buddy's taking bet after bet on the side. I mean, just a sheet of bets, really, anywhere from 50 to whatever the other bets were. So the bet got raised as we continue to play. And so anyways, they want a spot. So I, was, I give them the eight or the call eight. We're going to race to 15. They want to bet 10,000 in the middle. And so we were a pretty good winner already, probably 12 or 13,000 because we've been playing all day and raising it. So we said, okay, so we put 10,000 in the middle. And we probably had another 10 on the side. So long story short, it's 9-9 nine, nine and I wobble the 8. Or it's 9-8, I'm sorry, and I wobble the 8. He makes it 9-9 nine, nine and he breaks and runs four, uh, five racks to the heel. And so I look at my buddy and we only got about six or 8,000 left. You know, and so when you're on the road, you really can't lower the bet because it's kind of a telltale sign that, you know, you ain't got much money left. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, or at least most it is. Um, Wait a so, minute. It, hold on, Jeremy. Am yeah. I about to find out that Jeremy Jones shot an arrow barrel? No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, okay. No, no, no. All this money was posted. All right, all right. Um, no, no, we only did that 
if we knew each other. Joe. Oh. So, no, I'm, <laughs> anyway, that's a Houston thing. That's, back uh, in the day in Houston, you know, if you beat a guy, the air barrel is probably coming at the end, but that was okay because, you know, we'd lose 15 or 20 games at a time. So it wasn't right. like we'd lose two and owe you one. But gotcha. um, yeah, so anyways, so it's 14 to nine him and he breaks and it's like a little arena. Uh, in this place, everybody's off to the around back of the banister and everything. And anyway, so the four nine is wired to the corner and Frank is the only one sitting near the table. He's in a little school chair right on that corner where the nine is wired and Frank is no dummy. He sees the nines wired. So his man makes a great shot on the one. He made the two on the break. He shoots the three. And of course, me and my buddy are talking, what are we going to do? You know, well, we got to quit, right? So anyways, Mark was the type of guy to fire the nine in on you. And so this is a true story. And like I said, people still come up to me today. And so he fires his four nine. Well, it swirls around the pocket. It's an old drop pocket they replaced on the Brunswick gold crown. And this nine ball flies out of the hole all the way almost to the spot. And so Frank starts to get up and get the money because he can see the ball is dead. And he didn't realize Frank was up in years and I said, hey, Frank, man, the nine's on the table. And he said, oh, I'm sorry. So he sits back <laughs> down. And from there, Mark never pocketed another ball in the set. I, I played him safe. Uh, he kicked. I run out. I broke him around a couple. I played him safe. Played him safe. I run out. I broke him around another one. I beat him 15 to 14. <sighs> so uh, anyways, people still come up to me, like I said, and they say, man, I was there when that nine ball flew out the pocket on Mark Owens, you know, so. It was, and, and, and the funny, ironic part about it is, you know, Frank comes up to me, he says, hey, Mark's pretty upset. He said, come back tomorrow, we'll play some more. I said, okay. So we come back the next day and we start off betting pretty good, 3,000 3, a set or something like that. But there's nobody in there because it's a Monday. It might've been a Sunday, but there's no one in there yet to take side bets. So I beat him a couple sets and he says, hey, Mark wants to eat and he's going to play you some more. And I'm giving him the eight. And so Frank is sitting in that chair. So, so Mark eats a sandwich and then he starts practicing a little bit before we're going to start playing again. And he shoots the ball hundred miles an hour into that pocket again. And it jumps the table and hits Frank right in the eye. The state <laughs> course, right? And Frank's got glasses on, right? Oh man. Yeah, this is crazy. So blood starts going everywhere. So we all rush over to him. He, he's a tough guy. And he says, I'm all right. He says, but I better go to the doctor. So, it was kind of ironic. We never played again um, after he had to leave. Even though, so, so the pocket kind of saved me one night for a big number. But you know, maybe the next day it kind of saved them a little bit. Who knows? Yeah. Well, my dad taught me to play pool uh, when I was real little, Jeremy, like five years old. And uh, he always used to say one thing. He he used to say, "I don't care who you are. You're hitting the balls too hard." <laughs> Yeah. That guy needed to hear that. <laughs> right. Well, it was kind of like, you know, you see it today, actually, on the pro level. I comment about it sometimes. And, you know, usually it's a pretty easy shot uh, when the guys, but you'll see the guys shoot the nine in with a little authority. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, it just so happened. You know, it was a phony pocket. And mm -hmm. the funny thing is I was across the table and I could see the nine swirling around, you know, because I'm watching and I'm hoping, praying just anything might happen to give me a chance. And, I didn't ever expect that, but you could see it swirling around the pocket. Sure enough, I mean, it jumped out a foot up off the table almost to the spot. It was Jeez. the craziest thing ever. 
So that uh, that's an awesome story. I appreciate you sharing that. You you mentioned about you know seeing a lot of crazy out there. You know, I think nowadays with the internet and with the fact that people have a line on people, you know, it's those days are over. You know, I, I'm wondering though, like, is there anything you saw out there that was just like wild or nuts or, or just something that was that you could comment on, something that you could share with us? Uh, well, you know, big action. I I think it led more towards bigger action years ago, maybe. I'm trying to think of something crazy. You know, I saw Frank James beat up his car one time after losing the set. <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard of Canadian Frank James. He was actually a former NHL hockey player, but a great snooker player as well. Big guy. Oh, man. Uh, he was actually went overseas to play snooker. Uh, he was probably one of Canada's best ever. But, um, yeah, it's kind of like when you ask somebody something, it's hard to come with an answer, I guess. Give me a minute on that one, Joey, and I'll get back to yeah, you. Yeah, we can circle back to that. Okay. No no problem. Who was your favorite player to uh, to be on the road with? Uh, Probably Gabe Owen. Uh, we spent – I probably spent more time with him than anyone. We mixed pretty well, thought alike a lot. Um, I was lucky. I was, you know, I got to room with Johnny Archer for many years. He was a, a great mentor in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I was, a lot of people don't know it, but I'm kind of an introvert to be honest with you. So I don't, I don't really room with a ton of people that, you know, um, Joey Gray was a lot of fun this last year. Of course, uh, he and I have known each other, good friends for a long time, but never really spent as much time as, this last year, um, year and a half or whatever, uh, a lot of guys, uh, some of them you wouldn't know, you know, like, yeah. 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 Does Joey Gray uh, work out? I'm just curious. What's no, that? I said, does Joey Gray work out? I'm just curious. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, <laughs> he, he goes by Topwater, Gerald Jackson. Um, he's passed away now, probably 10 years ago, maybe eight years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. he was a, a guy that everyone knew out on the road that, a great guy for action and just a really fun guy to be around. Um, of course, getting to hang around with all the all the people in Houston, that was almost like being on the road itself. Um, that's why there was so much action because at one time I think there were about 80 pool rooms wow. uh, in the Houston area. Yeah, 1960, I think, at one time had nine on that road alone. And there were so many great players that would come in town and the local people, Duke and Jersey Red and you know, Gabby and just a number of guys that, that had all the wisdom. So, All right. One more question about the road, then we'll move on from there. Uh, so you commentate a lot of, you know, money matchups now. If let's say you had to go back out on the road and you had to get the money, give me two or three names that you would pick to uh, head out on the road with. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> like a, who could I put in my stable kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you guys got to make some money out there. we got to make some money out there. Well, I mean, you like the guys that they can cover all bases, right? So I think Fetter's a really good one. Probably going to be a great one pocket player if he ever puts in the time for it. Um, but he seems to perform real well. There's uh, let's see. Put you on the spot here. You're on the hot seat. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of some lower levels, you know, guys that I like the way they play, but maybe not necessarily champions, but match up and, and don't mind playing anybody. Tom and Medina, 
I don't know if you know Tommy very yeah. well. He puts a lot of guys in action, plays a lot of guys. He's a he's a lower level player, but you know, ain't everybody gonna play Federer Gorst, right? So that's right. Um, let's see who else. Uh, Josh Roberts, maybe. I like Josh. He gets in action a lot. Does well. So. Yeah, that's you gotta, good. You, you got to like guys that are going to play, right? So Heck yeah. yeah. yeah you know, have the courage good. to get up. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. You know, when I used to, um, you know, when I was playing a lot, I would travel quite a bit and I'd go into a pool room and I'd have people that, hey, you look like you play pretty good. I'll stick you against this guy. And I was always, I didn't want to get up. You know, I, I just didn't have it in me, you know, where I felt like I wanted to lose somebody's $1,500. You know, I was just in town for work or whatever, you know, but they could tell that I played pretty good, but I wasn't that guy. You wouldn't want me in your stable. That's for sure. <laughs> well, so. you get your feet wet you never know. You know? Yeah, so, maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's a little nerve wracking. I mean, but it's almost like, you know, going from town to town and, you know, maybe a funny story is. You know, you go to Waffle House when you enter the town and, um, you know, you get you some food and then you ask for the yellow pages to look up the beard section to start, you know, going to the pay phone to call pool rooms and see if somebody answers the phone that has a clue what's going on. Uh, and then some a funny thing is a time or two, the beard section was ripped out of the yellow pages already. So, <laughs> you know, and that's that's truth also. Uh, so, you know, the road back then was a lot of, a lot of fun and, and you could see why people got hooked to it, I guess. Yeah. I'm curious throughout your whole career. Um, what was your most crushing defeat? Uh, probably. I mean, I'd have to say probably the U S open in 99 against Johnny in the final. Um, I took our first defeat in the Moscone cup uh, pretty hard. That was in 2001, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, just because the team, I was raised around team sports and, you know, I was lucky enough that we won our first two and we played great and we, we played well in the third. They just outplayed us. Uh, I think it was the one where Steve Davis made the winning point against Earl, if I remember correctly. So, yeah, but probably as an individual, the U.S. Open in 99. So, because you never know when you're going to get back there. Um, Can, do you remember that match? Can you take us through that match? Uh, yeah, uh, I remember it real well, I think, anyways. Um, I haven't watched it. Uh, but I remember that I, I really didn't make too many mistakes. A couple bad rolls, making balls and getting snookered to go down 7-1. to one. Got a chance. Ran out, ran some racks, got it 7-7, going to 11 uh, after trailing by six, if I remember. And then Johnny, he double banked a ball in on me, cross side. Oh. Yeah, off the point. And he may have <laughs> done it in the next game as well, going for a cross side and double. Kind of a two-way shot kind of thing, you know, where he's yeah. trying to hold the cue ball somewhere and then end up winning four in a row. So it was a... It was a match of streaks of games one where, you know, and uh, to be honest with you, no one's cost me more money in professional pool than Johnny Archer. He beat Really? Me. Yeah, he beat me in the finals of about five pro events or so, something like four or five at least. So. so you mentioned traveling with him and getting to know him. 
but would you say he was probably your arch nemesis? Yeah, that year, actually, there were about 10 left. I beat Rudolph Luat and played about a perfect match in the hot seat match, beat him like 11-3 or 11-4. Um, really kind of had a tough draw and ran through the tournament, was playing. Well, 99, I had a great year anyways, so it was kind of like rolling good. I've got second, a lot of seconds, unfortunately, but a few firsts. Um, but definitely beat me in the finals more than any other player by far. Yeah. 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 So, uh, and about what I was getting at, there were like 10 players left. And I was doing an interview. Uh, it may have been Mike Pinoza. I can't remember. And he said, well, you can see it's Efren and Kim Davenport and Luat and John, you know, just all great names. Is there anybody you don't want to see? And it wasn't really answering that question. I just kind of said, well, you know, same thing I'm saying to you. Well, Johnny's cost me the most money. So I guess <laughs> if I had to pick somebody, not Johnny, and sure enough, that's who it was. So Yeah. So that was your most crushing defeat. Uh, you know, you go back to that Johnny Archer match at the U.S. Open. Uh, what would you say would be your, as a player, your most uh, crowning achievement, your biggest victory? Uh, you know, the one I remember the most probably is is the first Moscone Cup. Of course, the 03, I remember it pretty well in the U.S. Open, of course. Uh you know, so it's a it's a it's a toss up between those two. Uh, the BCA Pro Invitational was a big win for me just because um, the first year they had it, which also was '99. I got to the final and lost to George Sansushi in the final, and it was the first time I played a, a ESPN match. And so in '08, the last year they had it, I actually won the event which I was very, very happy just because it was the last year they're going to have it, got to the finals and never really had done too much else in it. So I remember that one pretty well. Uh, but probably, you know, either the Moscone or the first, the U.S. Open nine ball. So U.S. Did Open you... one pocket ranks up there pretty good too, just because I lost my first match in that event. And I think I won 11 in a row or something, 10 or 11 in a row to win the tournament. So, yeah. So, in terms of matches where you were gambling and matching up, was there anything that kind of uh, compared with the U.S. Open? Did you ever have any huge scores that you were like, yeah, this was amazing? Or was the tournament just that much different when you won a tournament championship? Yeah, it's that much different just because, you you know, when you're in action, of, especially back then, we started so much different, you know, it wasn't, Oh, let's bet 30,000 on this one set. It was a, you know, a lot of by the game and you raised it and you played long sessions and, and uh, that's how you beat a guy. So you really don't revel in the number or whatever, however you want to label it. You really don't get involved in the number so much until it is over. And then after 20 hours of playing, you're, you know, you're looking to eat something and go to sleep. And it's like, <laughs> you know, you just, it's not the, it's not as euphoric as a tournament win, tournament setting. And, you know, as much as all these guys that gamble on the road, when we all started, we loved the road gambling. But I mean, we still watched the, you know, read the magazines and watched the TV because that's where we wanted to be, I think, at least 99 out of 100. So, I would have to just still label with the tournaments for sure. Yeah. You know, as a, the tournaments are just a little bit more. You know. 
So I know you do a lot of coaching and a lot of training, and I'm curious, when did you start doing that, and what attracted you to that side of the sport? Uh, just a little guess, probably seriously six years ago, maybe. There were a couple guys here locally in DFW that wanted some help and kind of led from there. Uh, they did pretty well and liked what was going on, and and so the the rest of their teams, they played leagues and some of their teammates. And uh, I think at one time I ended up teaching two entire teams, uh, you know, off and on, not as a group, but as individuals. But um, and then kind of progressed from there. I learned I've learned so much that I didn't I knew I would learn, but I just didn't realize it was uh, so immense what you learn. And I think just because of the individual to individual basis. Uh, is what really made, I mean, our game's fascinating anyways, and there's all kinds of opinions, but if you really pay attention from person to person, I think that's really uh, the easiest way to learn what's going on. Yeah, so I had Sky Woodward on the podcast, and I was talking to Sky. I did this, I was doing this segment for a while. I forgot to include it tonight, but I basically throw out a player's name, and I have the guest give me a one word response to that player. And so I was talking to Sky and I said, Jeremy Jones. And uh, do you have a guess of what he might've said? The uh, one word response? One word. Well, good cook is two words, but other than that, <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> he said genius. Oh, wow. What well, do you think great. about that response? Uh, maybe a little over the top, but I, I'm going to have to text him after this is over and Send him a laughing face first, but send him a thank you. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, if you uh, if you ever hung out in my family, I, I think you would consider otherwise. I always label myself the dumbest in my family. But, <laughs> um, but genius is just, you know, that's pretty awesome, you know. Yeah, I mean, he was I, referring I don't to... I sensitive on this, on this show here, Joey, so... Well, you know, hey, we've had people cry on this show before, Jeremy. I believe it. <laughs> I believe it. It's early, but I'm feeling it. Yeah, no, but uh, in all honesty, he was talking about just the way you see the game is different from others. And picking up on your previous response, just I can tell that you're very observant, right? The people who are curious and observant, you know, they they make the best at understanding anything, any anything in life, right? And so, would you say that's a quality that you've kind of honed over the years is really paying attention and watching what people are doing and kind of rounding that into your repertoire in terms of coaching? Yeah. And I think it goes back to, uh, being number five out of six, very different active kids. Uh, you know, my, my siblings, my older brother was my hero in many ways, even though he was 10 years older. Um, he was a very good athlete. Uh, my dad was a very good athlete. Um, my sisters were always pretty successful and very smart. So, uh, paying attention was was kind of easy in that regard. And, and again, through sports, which I recognize now, you know, having my kids, uh, my stepchildren, that um, I was very lucky with the coaches I had as a whole. Um, and that makes a huge difference. So, 
Do you think, uh, like United States players, do you think they could benefit from having personal coaches more like the European players do? You know, a lot of the European players have their own coaches, right? That they can call, you know, they, they played a bad set. They, they call them even if they're not even around and say, Hey, here's what happened that set. And they, they kind of talk them through it. And, you know, I've heard countless stories of this. Do you think the U S players should look more towards, uh, kind of a coaching model? Well, without a doubt. I mean, every sport, you know, if you just toss aside the Euros and, and you know, the Chinese Taipei, obviously well-trained. Um, if you just toss aside our sport and just look at what's going on in the rest of the world in sports, uh, golf and oriented tennis, all those, you know, at one time it was very limited in coaching. They did have coaching and, and whatnot, but it wasn't anything like it is today. So, not not only to keep up with what's going on in our sport, but really what is available. If we don't do it, um, we're kind of it's kind of idiotic, really. Uh, otherwise, but the the one perspective that players need to have, and this is amateurs all the way up to the best in the world, if they're working with someone, is it's a long term thing. It's uh, you know you're putting your game in someone else's hands for a reason, so it's it's more of it's not going to be instant. I guess is what I'm saying. It's, you know, especially for the top players, you're talking about trying to improve them in percentage points overall. So even, even more so that they'll see results because of how great they are, but maybe something might not be so natural at first. So, um, but yeah, to answer your question, I think the Americans should definitely uh, be trying to, you know, whoever they believe in, give them a chance. And, uh, and uh, I think they'll see better results. So I know you do coaching, you know, as part of what you do to make money, you know, for a living. So you can't give away all your secrets. But I'm curious, one of the things when I started doing the podcast, I wanted to get your stories. I wanted to highlight you as a player, but I also wanted to get advice for maybe those up and coming players out there. I met a I met a kid from Texas, actually, in Las Vegas not too long ago. Um, Michael French was his name. And he said, you know, I've watched every one of your episodes. I take notes on them and whatever these guys say, I write it down and I try it. And I'm like, man, you don't realize the wind you just put under my sails to keep doing this, you know? And yeah. so, yeah. And, and I want to know from Jeremy Jones, what is one piece of advice that you could get, give to up and coming players out there that would help their game? Well, um, of course, quality practice, probably more than anything. I mean, we can't all get instruction and we can't all, um, you know, be next to the best players in the world or, or even, you know, take advantage of that one when, when you can, of course. But we all know the difference in quality and not quality when it comes to practicing. You know it yourself when you're when you're at home hitting balls or whatever it is. So um, it's easier to figure things out on your own when you're, you know, trying hard. So, Yeah. So you're the captain of the U.S. Moscone Cup team uh, for the last couple of years now. I'm curious how that opportunity began. Can you kind of take us through how you got involved in that and became a part of this? Uh, well, it started in 18, um, January, I believe it was 18. It may have been December of 17. I think it was January 18. Johan Rusnik uh, contacted me and said that, you know, him being captain, that he wanted an assistant captain. And, you know, to say it was a very short list of who he would uh, work with, maybe. 
um, he hit me up and he said that he felt like I was a good person to assist him on this side of the pond, get some things put together. You know, I know a lot of the players and, and so that's kind of how it got started. And then it just, from there, it went on to uh, being the captain. So I think I look back through your history. I think you might've played in like seven or, or maybe more Moscone seven. Cups. Is that seven? Uh, so <clears throat> what, role have you found to be more challenging playing in a Moscone cup or being the captain? Yeah, it's not even close to being the captain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So take yeah. us through some of the challenges, like what, what's going through your mind, like about now, you know, December's coming, it's a big month. Uh, there's a lot on the line. So tell us about some of the challenges of being captain and kind of what you're dealing with on the day to day. Uh, well, you know, it's a battle with myself a lot. <clears throat> in a regard that, you know, you're, you're here to be captain to win. Um, but you have to almost make your own standards about it. Um, uh, meaning it, you know, I, I, I want to go with players that are playing and competing. I know it's not always easy to, to be playing and competing right now. And it's easy to say, no, I'm not going to travel to those events because of obvious reasons. Um, uh, so, you know, making that battle, of course, a number one, we're here to win and I'm here to win. That's maybe I don't shout that out enough, but yeah. So, you know, trying to toss between a bunch of players um, to where a number one winning, but also, you know, I'm, it's not everyone gets a trophy kind of mentality. I don't want to go there, but I do want players that are competing. So, and you know, so it's very hard when you look at a player that maybe isn't competing as much, but maybe you feel like that's the guy or that's that guy's going to perform better, but there's still a little question mark there, but you see all these other people that are trending and, and getting better and, and out there playing the best players in the world. So that's the first and foremost, because like I said, winning is on the mind. So. Yeah. And I think this year, a lot of people in the United States were kind of looking for somebody to break through. You know, some younger player, like we talked about, we actually had you on the broadcast when Chris at the time, Robinson, now Reinhold, played Danny Olson, and Danny played a wonderful three days of 10 ball. And since then, though, you know, hasn't has struggled, you know, hasn't really broke through the way we were hoping. You actually brought up uh, Jeremy Sose on that uh, conversation that we had as maybe a player that you might be looking for. Um, you know, this year there hasn't really been anybody to kind of break through other than the normal people that we've been seeing for two, Team USA. I mean, am I seeing that right? Or, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I think we're we're right there, though. I mean, I, I think the next wave of, of young players, it's just a matter of, you know, even more so, I think the next young uh, wave of young players have a lot more talent than we've seen in the last few years as far as numbers. Um, maybe not more talent, but, you know, more of them and uh, more of a chance. It's just a matter of, you know, us keeping pushing them going to where they're playing those events to get the experience. One of them's going to break through. It's inevitable. But, uh, you know, if the numbers lessen, you know, well, the chances are slimmer. Um, but... Also, these last few months, we, you know, these have been pretty killer field tournaments, right? I mean, it's not easy to break through. We looked at a, a player, Aloysius Yap. Of course, he's from Singapore. He's not in the U.S. 
a conversation, but you could say he broke through and he's, he's been quite the player for a few years. So it's not easy to break through so, so easily for a lot of players, but I think it is coming. That's for sure. So how do you feel about the U.S.'s chances this year going into the Moscone Cup? Well, I, I love our chances. I mean, you know, I'll be honest, the team's not, you know, even close to assembled. Uh, there's still a lot of decisions to be made. Um, there's still a few events to look at. Uh, Shane and I have to discuss a lot of things. But, you know, as a coach, you have to look at it a little differently, I think. And we have to look at, you know, first off, how's the match going to go? You know, most likely, you know, we win a runaway, but most likely we're going to have a close one if we win, right? That's what I feel anyways. And, and um, well, I say I feel that. I have to uh, prepare for that. So, you know, I, I like looking at guys that are, are not beaten down, that are really trying to make those big wins. You know, of course, they have to have some credit to their names, and that doesn't mean world titles, but, you know, like I said earlier, maybe trending in the right direction. You know, we saw that last year with Chris, I thought. Uh, he didn't have those big wins, of course, but if you look at his matches, both wins and losses, uh, the scoreline will tell you he was heading in the right direction. And so that's uh, something that made my gut a little easier. And then, of course, working with him and, you know, his demeanor that, you know, the whole package made me feel like we could get some points out of him. And that's, uh, that's where we got to look from player to player. Yeah, and you did get points out of him. Uh, I thought he played very well. And uh, I'm a huge fan of Chris just because, you know, he does things the right way. He loses a big match and he posts on Facebook about, I'm going to work on X, Y, and Z, <laughs> you know. And it's like what you want to see. Uh, you had to be very proud of him. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was great. Um, you know, he actually got better as it went and uh, maybe not throughout every match in the Moscone, but just everything leading up to it, uh, which it's very easy to stumble, believe it or not, even knowing that, hey, I'm playing in the Moscone in a month, you know, or two months. Even practicing can be difficult um, because it was, you know, by far the biggest moment in his career, at least his professional career. So I was very happy. I was very happy with the guy, the way the guys accepted him, um, but also expected some things from him and, and he was willing to take on the challenge. You know, I, th I think he gets a few more points last year if it wasn't for this or that. Um, but he was, he was a true teammate, which is good. And, you know, in, in these kind of situations, you know, we're getting to where the Moscone has got so much information in past years that we can really look at players playing a role. And, uh, and that goes from the top guys, which is obviously Shane and Skyler uh, playing a role, all the way down to other guys playing a role. And whether that be in the practice room sometimes, of course, you got to be yourself, but then you also got to realize what's going on. We're all here to win. And uh, so looking at guys like in that manner, I think, makes a difference as well. But Chris, he, he, he did great. Uh, not to get off the question, I was super proud of him. Messaged him today. He's on the way to Austria. Uh, mm -hmm. to compete in that event and then be there with the juniors. So, you know, Chris, as far as pool, he's a huge asset to the game. Yeah, and he seems to be in pretty good form right now, at least from what I've been seeing. I mean, he hasn't won any big events, but he seems to be knocking on the door. Yeah, he was over at the house the other day for a few hours. Uh, 
wanting to work on some things. And that's the one thing, Chris, you know, he, he realizes he needs some work on some things and, uh, he, he trusts me. Um, of course I'm always here for all the players, but, um, I think you're going to see some things from Chris coming soon. He was saying that, yeah, he had a little slump in the year at one point, but he feels like even some matches that, that he's won and lost, he's headed in the right direction. So, um, looking for him, maybe, you know, do something in Austria. We'll see. Yeah. So Jeremy, I recently became a partner in the company one PKT.com. Uh, the first time I ever, thank you. I appreciate that. The first time I ever played the game of one pocket, I remember just like my mind was blown, you know, like what have I been missing all these years? And I just love the game. I love the intellectual side of the game. I love that, you know, you're constantly thinking offense, defense, and it sounds like such, I, I did a post about this the other day. It's such a simple game. Don't let your opponent shoot to his hole and shoot to your hole. You know, how, how yeah. hard could it be? But it takes like, it's kind of like poker, right? You can learn it quick, but to really learn it, like to master it, you have to play it for a very long time. And so I want to talk to you about being inducted into the One Pocket Hall of Fame. Uh, what an honor that must be. Tell us about um, what that means to you. Well, I mean, it's uh, definitely one of my, you know, once it became a thing, you know, I, I went to, I believe was the first one there at the QO cushion in Houston. It may have been the second one. Uh, it was when Jersey red was inducted. It was unfortunately after he had passed away, but Dottie and his, his wife and many of his, uh, fans were there. It was awesome. And, uh, of course at that time there wasn't a ton of one pocket tournaments. So you don't know how things are going to go. You know, it's kind of like not too much of a thought as far as getting in there or, you know, labeling yourself with Jersey Red, but, um, or Grady Matthews, Billy and Cardone, any of the great names, but uh, it was a true honor and, and, and really kind of a hats off to, to the Red Raider, uh, really spending the time with me. And then again, like I said, at the induction, um, being in Houston, you know, there are great one pocket cities and there are quite a few of them actually, but I don't know if there's any uh, that are as good as Houston, Texas. So that alone uh, was kind of like a hats off to them as well. Yeah, and I've heard that about Houston. I visit there every once in a while, and you know, you, you see one pocket being played all the time there. Uh, are you encouraged by what you're seeing with a lot of the events? I, I think I've noticed it over the last few years that it seems like any big tournament now, you know, nine ball, ten ball, whatever it is, has a one pocket division. You know, Texas Open has a one pocket division. There's a big tournament in Aiken, South Carolina, right now with a one pocket division. Do you feel like we're seeing more? tournament one pocket now than we have in a long time oh without a doubt and it's probably going to sustain i would i would think excuse me um one pocket fans and players are very uh faithful and very devoted to their game and and for good reason because the game's so great and uh you know i always said that you know a lot there for a little while you know, a lot of promoters or, or people that were thinking about nine ball thought the fans just wanted to see break and run after break and run. Um, where you don't get much fans decision making if it's just break and run, break and run. So in one pocket, um, you know, fans get to sit there and, and debate between themselves. Uh, oh, they should have done this or maybe this outcome. And, and not only that, like you said, all the creativity you see and all the different brains and 
different talent and what the what they excel at, which is a, a very fascinating that you can win different ways, which you can't do that playing other games in the pool, most most of them anyways. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, you're going to see tons of tournaments. I think at some time it may even make the mainstream. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how or where, but I, you know, like I said, I think most fans, when they watch football, they want to talk about the decisions, you know, like I was an athlete, right? So I appreciate watching them throw it and catch it. It's so awesome. I understand how difficult that is and everything else, but 90 or 80 or 90% of fans want to sit back and say, Oh no, he should have thrown it. Oh, why do you do this? He should have done that. You know? So one pocket leads to that a little bit more, which uh, I like what they're doing with rotation now, tightening the pockets, making the break a little tougher. That leads towards more of the game, which I think fans will appreciate in the end also. Yeah, and I think one pocket is that game that it's all about matchups, right? Sometimes you have two people that just match up really well together and, you know, or or one person matches up well against another person and then not so well against another. I, I recall the match between, I think it was the last match that Chip and Roberto played. And Roberto started off day one really well. And I'm like, oh, he's going to take this. And then just Chip put the the lock on him, you know, he just like, like tightened up. And it was like Roberto couldn't win a game after that, it seemed like. And so there's just this this whole dynamic between the offense, the defense, and the mental side of it. You know, it's like I think we've all played the game where you're you're getting a ball and you can't win. And then you get one more ball. Instead of 9-8, uh, you get 9-7, and now they can't win. You know, and right. it's like how does one ball make that big a difference? Well, it does up here. You know, well, and I think there's the information is solid. And what I mean, what like you just said, as far as Chip and Roberto. Now, I don't know if Chip went back and looked at day one or just thought about how he won games versus how he lost games. And that's one thing you can do in a match, especially if you're playing multiple days, is you can go back and say, hey, when I did this, I won nine out of 10 or eight out of 10. And, you know, I remember that match. It was a little unfortunate uh, for Roberto that he was a little. Uh, let's say young in his one pocket career because he couldn't really prevent the balls from going up table. He didn't quite know what to do all the time uh, to keep Chip from getting him up table. And then you saw what happened when when Chip got him up in the corner. It was it was almost easy pickings, right? Yeah. When I became a huge fan of yours, so I I always knew you as a player, respected you as a player. But when I got into one pocket, I started watching some one pocket videos, some YouTube and and noticed you as a commentator. And right away, I was like searching for matches that you commentated because your knowledge of the game and the way you could explain shots. What drew you to commentating? Uh, What was the thing that said, hey, I'd like to try this? Well, I did it actually. First one, maybe. I think 99 or 2000, I got to do some world championships, uh, nine ball with Sid Waddell, who was great. I don't know if you ever got to watch him. He's passed away now, but he was a great commentator in England, did many uh, snooker and different things. But um, he gave me a lot of credit. He said, hey, I think you should look into this at some time when you're, you know, not playing. And so I did some here and there with Moscone and I did some more world nine balls whenever I got knocked out of the tournament and whatnot. And didn't really do much for a couple of years because I wasn't playing a whole lot from, I think, 10 to like 12 or something like that. Maybe 09 to like 2012, I didn't play a lot of tournaments. So 
And then uh, Ray Hansen at Pull Action TV, I'd gotten around him a few times and he was like, I'd love to have you in here. And it just kind of, you know, as he grew, I started doing more. And then, of course, I'd always do some for Pat uh, Fleming at his events there. And we did some make it happen events together. And, um, you know, of course, Matchroom put me in the box there doing some. So it's kind of went from from not really trying it to, you know, to make it a too often thing to something I do quite a bit, but I'm pretty comfortable doing it. Um, I think there's a lot of great commentators out there. Um, but yeah, I enjoy it. It keeps me in stroke a little bit anyways, or it keeps, and it definitely keeps me inspired. Let's say that, Joey. So. Yeah. So I started dabbling in that a couple of years ago and it was just, we had, it's actually right when the, the, uh, pandemic started, we had a lockdown and we had a guy here in town uh, in Phoenix, uh, who had, he had a seven foot diamond tightened up super tight and like four inch pockets. And, you know, every, all the top players would go over there and play on a Friday night, but it would just be the players in there because of the pandemic. Right. And, uh, Scott Frost went over there and he labeled it, uh, the guy's name's junior Flores, his house and Scott labeled it juniors trap house <laughs> because the table is so gaffy. Right. But uh, I would come over and I would commentate sitting on the patio looking through the window. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, it was really neat. And, you know, the first couple of times I did it, people were like, hey, you're doing a good job. I really like listening to you. And, you know, I was like, well, if I'm going to do this, let me do it right. And I started kind of like modeling, you know, what you do and and that kind of thing. I'm wondering, there's a lot of people with all the live streams that are available now, all the people streaming matches and doing commentary. What kind of advice would you have for maybe an aspiring commentator? Uh, you know, try and keep it real, of course. Um, you know, kind of realize the players are the show. You know, I mean, it's uh, you focus on them. Um, usually just pinging off your, your partner in the booth. You know, sometimes I do it solo. When I do it solo, I probably get into game a little bit more shot for shot um, and just trying to enjoy yourself. People, the only way people are going to continue to want or enjoy you is if you are you um, because you can't continue a, a farce for a long time. We all know that. So um, yeah, just be yourself and, and, and realize you're going to improve as you go. It's not going to be just perfect at first. Um, and, and, you know, just like anything else, the guys at the table go with your gut. Uh, we all make mistakes, you know, so it, it, you, you'll get better. Almost everyone gets better as they go. So. Well, I've never missed a shot from the booth. I'll tell you that. <laughs> I don't know. I've been dogging it before so bad. I wanted to leave the booth to make sure oh, man. I uh, didn't miss one. But, yeah, it's a lot mm -hmm. of fun, the commentary. you Like I said, you've done it. Um, you know, it can be – a. It can be hard sometimes when, when sometimes, you know, okay, I'm lucky I get to do mainly great players um, or at least very good players or, you know, even, even guys that are a little bit down, but uh, you know, the toughest part is when they're struggling, of course, it almost makes you struggle a little bit. Um, but you know, that's, that's going to be pretty rare. And, you know, like I said, just, uh, just know you're going to improve and be yourself. It must have been really tough commentating my match against Christina Takach out here in Tucson, huh? I was dogging it. No, hard. no, I watched <laughs> practice uh, for oh. a while, off and on, because you were on the table a lot during that week, yeah. or when you could be. 
And uh, that first night uh, when I saw you there, and then I was pretty impressed overall. I told my guys that I didn't Shucks. realize you could. I didn't realize you're a pool player. You know, I knew you played, of course, but I mean, uh, yeah. but I knew it wasn't your best game overall. But you made a lot of good outs, anyways, and. That's the one thing is a lot of pressure for you in that event. Plus it's a race to four, which adds pressure. So shot like clock, Jeremy, shot oh, yeah, clock, shot clock. Yeah, I had never played. Look, I told everybody this. I had never played under a shot clock and you know, I think I'm a pretty fast player and 30 seconds sounds like a lot with a 20 second extension, but mm -hmm. it's really not a lot. As soon as you get up out of your seat, and the clock's ticking, you assess what you have going on. If you take one lap around the table or you look at something twice mm -hmm. and then you get back down, well, you're pretty much going to hear the beep or you're going to be pretty close to that. Right. And if you have to get a bridge, like one time, I don't know if you remember this, but I completely dogged it, right? Because it's a shot where I have to put my extension on. So I go over and I get my extension and I put it on. And then I realized it's still not enough. So I had to grab the bridge. So I do that. And so I have to use my extension. So I'm like, okay, I've used my extension. And then I reach out, I shoot it with the bridge. And then as soon as that's over, I go to put the bridge under the table. And I'm the kind of guy, if it's hanging out a little bit, it's got to be perfect, right? Yeah. So I'm kicking the bridge under. And then I'm taking my extension off. And I try to lay it on the table. And it's rolling off. And I look up and I got 10 seconds left. I got to race to the table. I mean, people don't realize that. I think if you've never played with a shot clock, that was something that was super hard for me to fade. Yeah, it's not easy. I, I, I was talking to a guy about it the other night. I think the shortest that I ever played with was 35, actually in the Moscone Cup when they implemented uh, the last two times I played, or maybe three. Um, but 30 short, I, the, the big deal about the shot clock is, of course, practicing it a little bit. But, you know, when you have that minute after the break, understanding how vital that is to assess later on in the rack. You know, like if you, you know, if you, if you recognize you're going to have a problem, right, balls are tied up, right, you have to take some of that first minute to kind of, give you a little feeling on how you're going to address a major problem. Um, and also use that clock a little bit to settle yourself and use that first minute. That's where I think a lot of people make a mistake is the first shot's kind of easy. So they get down and they don't use much of that minute and uh, to, to look at the rest of the table and maybe the rest of the out or maybe something that might happen later in the game. But, um, you know, it's not easy, that's for sure. I was actually not a fast player or not known to be a fast player because I had to use a lot of powder and whatnot. My hands really, you know, out of norms, you know, had a lot of sweat. So, uh, but I, for some reason, was very comfortable with the clock once I started to play with it. It, it didn't seem to bother me. And of course, um, I preach to people, you have to learn to go with your gut instinct as far as your position play. You know, unless you're, you know, the little devil on your right shoulder is telling you, no, no, no. You really have to be able to see that it's more about execution than it is decision when you're on a 30 sec second shot clock. You know, there's, you look at a ball and you say, oh, I'm supposed to go two rails here. Well, you're going to mess up your execution if you start questioning that and get down on the shot clock. You're better off to say, okay, that two rails is correct. And now I have 20 seconds or 18 seconds to get down and execute the way I want to. Because normally you overcome that little bit of a bad decision as long as your execution is good, if that makes any sense, Joey. So. Yeah, it does. There's some great advice there, I think, that you've provided for managing the shot clock that I hope, you know, for, for folks with now, with Predator and, and CSI doing these events, 
for not a whole lot of money, you can get in and compete against pros if you're a, a good amateur or, you know, top amateur. And a lot of them haven't played with a shot clock. Like I had never played with a shot clock. And so that using that first minute, I think that's beautiful because I didn't do that. I didn't even think about that. And once it's gone, once you shoot that first shot, you don't get that time back. So why no, not take that no. time? Yeah. And if you shoot the first shot and you get a little out of line, you know, it's like now 30 seconds looks like super quick. You just had a minute, but you shot quickly. 30 looks like it's going to go real fast, you know, so you don't get any feel, you don't get any comfort. And even if it's just for comfort, try and use that minute a little bit, you know? Yeah. So, so we have the, the predator CSI events. Uh, I think they did they had five on the schedule, but they're doing four this year. I think they postponed Puerto Rico. I think they're adding events next year. They're adding more money. You have Matchroom now, which is adding another event, which they added an event this year with the CLP. Um, pool, like pool's in an interesting spot. You know, people talk about it and they're kind of down on it all the time. And, you know, they're always naysayers, but I think it's growing and some cool things are happening. But what ideas might you have? for kind of even taking it to the next level? Uh, well, you know, I wouldn't say I've ever, I've, I ran two tournaments, uh, me and a friend of mine down in Houston in um, 2000 or 2001, 2001 it was. Um, and they were very good. They, they worked out nice. And so, uh, but as, as far as, you know, just those two tournaments, I wouldn't say I've ever been on the backside of things. Um, so the the real only I think accurate input I could try and give is is that I'd love to see the players um, as a group you know add things to the event I think uh, not only um, financially but in dollar sense I think as a group we could raise dollars to add to great events um, not only the big ones but make other ones bigger um, I think we could promote which would only help promote ourselves and the events in certain ways, you know, that, and that eerily sounds like a player's association. Um, but I think, you know, that's been a, a rough term in our sport or uh, because of, of some past things, but I think our sport is getting to the point um, that a lot of these big groups, you know, if it was set up correctly, they would love to, to just, you know, do business with the association instead of 128 individuals. Does that make sense? Yeah. What uh, do we need to do to make that happen? Because I've heard a lot of people say that. And then I heard some names tossed around. And every time a name gets tossed around as somebody who might be able to lead that, you know, people are shooting holes in it and saying, no, that guy won't work. <laughs> He's well, a jerk or, or whatever. How do, how do we do that? How do we get to I'm, that? I mean, you know, I don't, I can't speak for you, but most people I know can get a few holes shot in them. I know I could, um, well, none of us are perfect. Um, but it's just, uh, you know, of course, like I said, I, I think Matchroom, I think CSI, I think whoever's involved promoting events, like I said, if it was done correctly, they would love to contact one person knowing that that, or one, you know, group, a, a small group, knowing that that's going to cover a lot of bases. Um, and not only that, like I said, as far as, you know, there's a, the biggest brand would be the players as a group, in my opinion, uh, versus, um, them by themselves. So I think, you know, a lot of times the players want to see bigger added money, but also if we went out and put some, you know, 
legwork, footwork in, we could add money to events. And also, you know, when they want to ask for more money, you know, we'll say it's a lot easier to ask for more money if you're going to, you know, add some money yourself, right? So, uh, and also promote with the juniors and, and do raise money for the juniors and, and just, you know, get more of an organization of, you know, from the top on down maybe. Um, but to get it done, it would take some some devotion and, like I said before, like a long-term thing, just like a coach. Uh, it's going to take something that's the players are going to have to understand it's going to start out smaller if it's going to work correctly and build. Um, you know, the issue is the chicken and the egg. You know, the players want the money, the money wants the players, right? Which, yeah. which one's going to come first? And I think if they both started out on a smaller region or a smaller uh, size, um, it would work. Uh, and, you know, of course, we can't have no ulterior motives. Um, right. You know, that's the thing that people have said in the past, and I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong or true or false or whatever, um, but that just can't be part of it. It's got to be a, as a whole thing. And and the main thing that, that that, like I said at the beginning of this, is that those promoters and those companies and those huge, you know, facets of people that do things i think in the end if it was done correctly would love to just have to say hey players association you know we want 100 out of your top 128 to make this event is that okay you know and now i'm just pulling something out of a hat you know yeah. but how much easier would that say okay we got that now you go do your business and we'll do our business and we'll have that hundred there um and that's just one thing that would make an event better right i mean how can yeah a CSI or, or Matchroom or whomever's running an event, AccuStats, Pat Fleming, you know, how great would it, it be to him be able to advertise? Yeah, these 128 in the world right here, well, 100 are going to be here. And that, yep. that's a huge thing for them as far as making their event uh, successful. So, Jeremy, I, I see you have your QTech shirt there. And no, when we were... We're a bigger tent. It's a little yeah, hard. It, so when we were in Tucson, you saw me playing with my Avid that I have, just kind of mm -hmm. testing it out and was saying what a great hitting cue that is. And so I want to give you a chance to talk about uh, your sponsors. Yeah, well, QTech, they've been uh, a blessing. And, you know, Kyle and Brett and Ian and uh, everyone over there is, uh, you know, really, I, I try not to ask for too much, of course, but those guys have been a blessing and, um, you know, Kyle, he's, uh, he's worked on and off during pandemic, had a few health issues, but he's always on it. And just like I was telling a guy earlier that, you know, I didn't know the Q tech team years and years ago at all. And I'm sure it's not the same knowing these guys age and history and whatnot, but, uh, when they go to designing something, it's just not like on the fly, you know, there's a lot of research done and there's a lot of things that go into their product. Um, and not just knowing these type of guys, but playing with the product. And, uh, to be honest with you, Joey, I got to have it, but on my synergy right now, I just got uh. this. So I'll be, I love it. I'll be switching to it and, uh, can't wait till the chefs come in next week, to be honest with you. Yeah. And Fort Worth Beards, Albert Trujillo and everyone over there who does so much, uh, you know, Albert, he helps so many people that he's maybe not a na nationwide known name even though a lot of people from around the nation do business with forward billiards. I do know that, but he does so much in the DFW area that the man just doesn't have time to go nationwide. But, uh, 
he's the type that, that could easily do that. And he's just a great guy. Um, and again, you know, just anything we've talked about, he's just, yeah, let me know, let me know what I can do. And, uh, along with the juniors sponsoring a lot of juniors locally and, and sending them out to play. And, you know, both those companies, Q-Tech and Fort Worth Billiards, it's just been a blessing. Yeah. And I think I just saw that, uh, Fort Worth Billiards is sponsoring Chris Reinhold now. Yeah, that's I think right. I just noticed it. Yeah. So that's great. Well, yeah, Jeremy. Easy combo to, to, to figure, right? So. Yeah. So Jeremy, you've been great with your time. I know we kind of dodged each other for <laughs> a couple of weeks. Like I was busy, yeah. you were busy, uh, but I really appreciate you making the time to to speak with me. And I think the viewers are really going to appreciate all of this insight and getting to know more about you. You know, the man behind the mic, the man behind team USA, you know, the man behind a U.S. open championship and the one pocket hall of fame. So I want to give you a chance. Are there any final thoughts that you have for the folks that might be out there watching this? Yeah. You know, keep at it. Um, there's one person that, that, um, my wife, Amy, um, I'd like to thank her that she puts me in a better position all the time. I'm not, uh, easy to deal with all the time. Uh, just like any of us pool players. So, um, she makes me better and better with, with everything that goes on. And, uh, I certainly appreciate her and love her to death. And, um, of course the fans, uh, y'all make it all worth it. Um, I don't know how many times when I'm traveling, people come up to me and maybe it's a, uh, an easy way to approach somebody you, you look at as a peer or whatnot, but they come up to me and tell me how much they appreciate what's going on, uh, with pool and what I'm doing with it and what, what I'm involved with. And uh, also, I'd like to thank the players. Uh, players get a lot of knocks at times, but, um, you know, being out there and traveling and being away from your families and whatnot is not so easy. So it's easy for them to get a little, you know, tired, let's say. And, and uh, But they keep at it, and they, they keep making the sport great. So hats off to the fans and players and, of course, uh, my wife, Amy Jones. Awesome. Well, Jeremy, there's one thing I forgot. Oh. Are you open? Are you open for new customers for your coaching services, your training services? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, travel how do people some. get? Yeah, yeah, how do people I, get a hold I really of you? Ever say no, so <laughs> I try to accommodate. Um, you know, I have, of course, to figure out times and whatnot. Yeah, but yeah, definitely. And and uh, I wanted to thank you as well, Joey, for having me on. And and uh, I was going to ask you to be in Ohio. You know, I'm trying to make it work. I'm okay, not sure. Good, good. I'm, I'm like 72% right now. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Refrigerator Perry was number 72, I think. So yeah, I always that's true. related to it. That's true. When people say a number. So, a so Jeremy, number. if somebody wanted to sign up for your services, uh, how do they, how do they reach you? Just mainly Facebook messenger. Um, if you get my number from someone, that's fine. No big deal. Don't really want to give it out just right here on the, no, absolutely. but yeah, yeah. If someone, we got to get you a website, man, get you a website yeah, and an yeah. email. <laughs> yeah, well, I, just, I actually have uh, started that a couple years ago, but then I'm kind of changing directions with it a little bit. So hopefully something here in the future to where I could maybe accommodate more people around without maybe being right in person. So sure. Well, yeah, yeah I kind of want something unique. That's all. Okay. Yeah. And people, if you need to get a hold of Jeremy and you're friends with me on Facebook, shoot me a message. I'll hook it up. I'll make sure you get in touch with him so you can get some of the best training that's available out there. 
Jeremy, yeah. thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Joey, no worries. Awesome. You have it. That was Jeremy Jones, Team USA Moscone Cup captain, former U.S. Open champion, and former U.S. Open One Pocket champion and One Pocket Hall of Famer. Uh, I really enjoyed that conversation. And about two seconds after we disconnected, Jeremy sent me a message and he said, hey, make sure to give a shout out to James Davis Jr. Uh, We're asking for prayers. He was hospitalized and really in bad shape, but it looks like he's starting to improve. So if you would just give a little prayer to James Davis Jr., a good pool player in Texas, kind of uh, been in the Texas pool community for a long, long time. So uh, if you guys would, thank you. Take care.